Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 122 of the Conquering Columbus podcast. Today on the show, we've got Jane Abel joining us, and I'm really excited for this episode. I think you guys are going to get a lot out of it. Jane has a great story about her family and the founding of the Nottos, and I think if you get anything from this episode, really focus on how she talks about culture and how important it is to her team. Before we get to that, I want to take a quick moment, as usual, to thank all the incredible sponsors and supporters here at Conquering Columbus. So I'm going to kick it over to Josh to tell you a little more about our first sponsor, FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest-growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored-fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent, through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state. And you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And our next sponsor is Share. For the rides that you take the most, ride with Share. Share is a new transportation company now driving Columbus. Schedule your ride and Share picks you up at your door with professional drivers and a growing fleet of connected vehicles. Share is now hiring with entry-level management positions available. You can learn more about careers with Share at drivewithshare.com. I'd also like to give a shout out to Molly Ross. Molly Ross is an independent designer who focuses on branding and web design. She wants to connect with you, hear your story, and partner to create something beautiful that will help your business be more successful. If you'd like to check out some of Molly's work or connect with her, you can go to mollyross.com. Finally, if you've ever wondered what it takes to start your own podcast, we're here to help. We're putting together a podcast startup package with our recommendations and some of the key lessons we learned over the past two years of podcasting. You can sign up by heading over to our website, conqueringcolumbus.com. And while you're there, don't forget to give us a like on Facebook and be sure to subscribe and share Conquering Columbus wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Conquerors, let's get the show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. We've got a great guest lined up today, Miss Jane Abel. And Jane is the chairwoman of the board over at Donato's Pizza, and she's also one of the founding family members of Donato's. And she's held a variety of roles within Donato's and Jane's Dough Foods, Donato's Food Commissary Operations. She's also highly involved in nonprofit ventures and sits on the board at the Reeb Avenue Center, Action for Children, Experience Columbus, and I Know I Can. 
She was named Columbus CEO Magazine's CEO of the Year in 2014, and she's also an author, having released her first book, The Missing Piece, Doing Business the Donato's Way in 2015. And finally, she's also been on the show Undercover Boss, which is something we'll get to talk about a little later, but we're really excited to have her here today. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Jane. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, and thanks a lot for joining us. I know it's a little later in the evening, around 7 p.m., so you know we're excited to end the day here talking with you. I am too. Thank you. So we're, kind of where we like to start is we generally like to kind of kick it back and start with your childhood growing up, maybe your experiences in a family business and kind of how you proceeded maybe up through college and, and just getting your first role out of college. Great. So long, long story short, um, my dad uh, started Donato's Pizza because he was working in a pizza place by the age of 13. And so and that was before the labor laws. And so, and his experiences, what he learned was he worked for a gentleman with great integrity and principles and values and a gentleman that didn't necessarily have the same values. And so by the age of 16, he had an opportunity to buy his very first pizza place. And he went home, talked to his dad, my grandpa. I was like, you know, for this amount of money, I can buy this pizza place. And what I want to be able to do is bring my principals to work with me. Because what he learned was sometimes one of the managers would water down the sauce or not put the right amount of pepperonis on or sometimes take cash out of the register and go down the street and go to the bar and bring back women. And in my dad's eyes and the way that he had been brought up, that those were not aligned with his values. And so then he worked for another gentleman who was all about making sure the customer got the same product every single time, making sure he took care of his customers and his associates. And he wanted to go into business because he wanted to be able to bring his values to work and not have to pretend to be something else when you're at work. And my grandpa was like, eh, good idea, but you're gonna stay in school. And my grandpa was a first generation immigrant from Germany, and then he served in the army, and he had his own grocery store, and it didn't necessarily work out, so he had to close it. And he worked two jobs, and so he's like, you're going to college, you're gonna be the first generation to go to college, so you're gonna stay in school. So my dad did, and then he went to the Ohio State University, um, and as a sophomore, he continued to work in the pizza business, he had an opportunity to buy a pizza business again. And this, by this time, um, he was taking accounting classes and all these other classes. And what he learned in some of his business classes that the sole purpose of going into business was to make a profit. And I would say, in, in, for him, it didn't resonate. Like the sole purpose of going into business isn't to make a profit, it's about giving back. And so, being able to bring your soul, S-O-U-L, instead of soul, S-O-L-E, to business was really important to him. So he dropped out of college as a sophomore, and at the age of 19, he bought a um, the pizza place that he was working in for $1,300, and then he bought the name Donato's from a gentleman by the name of Don Potts, who was selling pizza out of his home, who was actually in the seminary, and the reason Don Potts named it Donato's was because it meant to give a good thing. So he bought the name, he bought a dough roller, he bought an oven, he bought the sign, and he went into business for $1,300. So long story to get to like where I came into this. So we grew up on the south side of Columbus. My dad built his very first pizza place, Donato's, on Thurman Avenue in the south side of Columbus, not very far from Ohio State University. And um, we, we grew up right behind it. So for me, there's four of us. There's four kids in the that were in the business, no longer in the business. And we lived it. And so every holiday, every birthday, every occasion was over at the restaurant. 
oftentimes, so my dad built a freestanding building, but he didn't build a dining room. And so at night, he would say, hey, go back and see Nancy and the kids. It's my mom. And so every single night, my mom would open the door, and our living room was full of our customers. And the beauty of that was learning about hospitality at such a young age, right? So every single night, customers would just come into our front door, and they would wait for their pizza, and they would hang out with us, and we got to know our customers like they were family. And so you learn the value of how your customers truly are your family and how the associates become your family. So that's kind of where I came into the picture. Um, and then we grew up in the business. I worked, well, I got started getting paid when I was 11, but I worked before that. Um, and then we expanded the business um, throughout that time into the 90s um, when I graduated from Ohio State University in 88. And then I took over our training department, which then became our people department instead of an HR department. Um, and so that's kind of where my role led me. But I was always in the operational part of our business. Um, but mostly, I would say, as a little girl growing up in a family business, truly where it's in your front yard and your customers are coming to your home, at nighttime, my dad would come and get us out of bed. And we'd be in our night nightgowns. My brother wasn't in his PJs. And we'd go stand under the sign. And it was one of those really big old signs that had that blinking arrow kind of like that, the drive-in signs. And he, we would stand under the sign, and my dad would say all the time, like, one day you're going to see Donatos around the world. And it's not because we want to be the biggest or we want to be the, mul the, the uh, most number of units out there or that we want to make this much money, but we're going to do every single time we open a store, we're going to bring our principals to that block. And we're going to make a difference in that neighborhood. And so as a little girl growing up, when you don't know any other way, right, like it's the only job I ever had, that was instilled in me at a very early age. And as, as we got to know our customers and as we grew the business, it became really a part of who I was. And so that's how we, I ended up really, I'm, I love our business because I love our people, that I continued to stay with the business. So I'll take you through probably the longer journey of we ended up selling it and then buying it back, which was a transition, but that was kind of my journey throughout um, working in operations and then into human resources. It's amazing those core fundamentals, like the ones that you mentioned that stick out the most to me that I think I'm realizing in our business here that have become so important that I didn't really realize at first are the discipline, the integrity, and just doing the small things right, and then that growth mindset. You know, I don't think um, a lot of people are brought up with the mindset that there's abundance out there and you can really kind of take on the world and instill that in your kids is an interesting concept um, to kind of set the stage for a timeline. So when you started working at 11 versus when you joined the business after you graduated college, what were the difference in the terms of the number of stores in those different points? Oh, so obviously we had the one store as, as a young girl. We franchised, so a couple pivotal points for us in our timeline. We, uh, my dad opened up two additional locations in the late, so he opened up in 1963 so by 1968, he opened up two additional locations. And what he found was the product wasn't the same. The people weren't the same. He'd get calls at night, you know, thanks, Jim, but I'm not going to go to your Grove City location anymore because the pizza doesn't taste the same. People didn't treat me the same way. So my dad, you think about now, but took a step back and said, I'm, I'm going to close those two additional locations down, and I'm never opening up another location until we can do it the same way. And why that was important, because it led him then to, so I always say, actually, I just had dinner with him. If he were to finish school, he probably would have been an engineer. Like, his mind thinks like an engineer. So 
it was really important for him to have a consistent product always. So our contract with our customer is, if you buy one pizza from us, we promise the next time that pizza is going to be exactly the same. And when he found those other two locations weren't doing it, he decided to close them down. And he went to work on a piece of equipment called the Pepematic, which then stemmed another business I'll talk about. But the idea was he used to slice pepperoni by hand, and we put 100 pieces of pepperoni on our pizzas, and we also weigh them to one one-hundredth of a pound. So you can imagine, if you're slicing by hand 100 pieces of pepperoni for one pizza, one, that's very labor-intensive, but two, sometimes they'll be thick or thin, and so the pizza would look different every single time, and he couldn't stand it. And so that idea of consistency and being able to build in consistency into everything that we're doing, he would dream at night about this piece of equipment um, where you could put the pepperoni sticks on the top, slice them over a blade, and it'd be the same thickness, and it'd come out on a conveyor belt underneath. And so he did on a garbage can prototype behind our house in the shed, and he would drag it into the restaurant, and he'd put these pepperoni sticks on the top, and he would manually slice it over the blade. Springs would pop out. Associates would laugh at him. He'd drag it back out. And what ended up happening was that passion for consistency. My grandpa, who then was working at Kroger, the deli manager came over and said, you know, if you could um, automate that piece of equipment, he said you could go to all the frozen pizza manufacturers because they're still slicing by hand and putting on. So early 70s, right? Disruptor before disruption was the cool word. Um, and if you could automate it, I'm sure you could sell it across the industry for the pizza, uh, frozen pizza industry. So he did. He went to work on it, and he got my uncle, who is an engineer by trade, um, and they automated it, and they ended up, that's now a $65 million company. It's called the Grady Manufacturing Company. They have 23 different patents on their products, and they slice everything from cheese to sandwiches to potato peels to french fries to bacon. We love bacon. Like, we slice a lot of bacon. So the Grody Manufacturing Company was really born out of the idea of how do you make a consistent product with pepperoni. So that then happened through the 70s. And then um, as I was growing up, I was still working in the stores and we were making pizza. We didn't have to slice the pepperoni anymore, which was nice. Um, and then we, um, by the time I had graduated, we had 20 stores. So think about that. That's a long time, right? From the <laughs> 60s. Nowadays, you're like, what took you so long? Well, what took us so long was making sure we had the process in place to make sure that we could grow. And so um, by the time I graduated from college, we had about 20 stores. We went on TV um, and really then started franchising in the early 90s. And so 1992 was the first time that we decided to franchise because growing with other people's money is an important piece of growing a business. And for us, it wasn't just about growing with other people's money. It was about making sure we were partnering with people who could open and build a business that the community knew that that person owned it. And it wasn't some big conglomerate. It was about that franchise on that corner owning that business. And so we started franchising in the early 90s. And then I became our chief people officer. And then 1999 is when McDonald's approached us. And while we were looking to grow, we were looking at all different alternatives. We were looking at private equity, we were looking at angel investors, and we were looking at franchising. Um, McDonald's knocked on our door. We never, in all of our discussions as a family, so my mom was involved, my sister, my younger brother, my older brother, and lots of cousins, um, never talked about selling the business. It wasn't, my dad wasn't, we weren't under the sign when my dad was saying, hey, it's gonna be an exit strategy and one day we'll get all our money off the table was about we're gonna make a difference with our principles. So um, when they approached us, they flew us to Chicago 
And it was a difficult moment for us because that was the time, if you remember, McDonald's was expanding their meal occasion strategy. So they were looking to get into Mexican, into Italian, with Fazoli's, into pizza with us. And they had searched the entire world and they narrowed it down to 60 concepts. Um, And then they had gone to every single one of our locations and decided we were best in class because we had a consistent product and because we had best in class people. And so they presented the idea for us to sell the entire company to them, where we thought, like they did with Chipotle, it would just be a small percentage. Going into the meeting, we walked out with the feeling of, oh my gosh, they want the whole company. And that's not something we ever considered. So it took us about three months to really, as a family, get together with all of our advisors and say, what's the best thing for our company to grow it? And I will tell you, my dad's very first reaction was, Oh my gosh, we have the opportunity to influence the world's largest restaurant company on doing business based on principles. So what we call now agape capitalism, which is doing business with love. And so I was probably the most emotionally tied to it. I was our chief people officer at the time, and I was all about our culture and our people and not necessarily sure that this marriage would be a very healthy thing. Um, But we decided to do it as a family. And shortly after that, then... What was good about it as a family business is it gave my brother and my sister and my other brother the opportunity and my mom to financially, in a family business, cut the umbilical cord. So you don't feel like, oh, like I owe this to or I have to continue this on. Um, And they all went off and have done really incredible things, um, but mostly what they were passionate about. But for me, like serving people is what I'm passionate about and our product is what I'm passionate about. So I stayed on during that time. And I talk a lot about in the book, I lost myself during that time. So here we are, this small family business. We sold to the world's largest restaurant company. And all of a sudden, what I found myself in a, in a very different situation where I wasn't reporting to my dad or my brother or my mom anymore. I was reporting to a new CEO. And the bottom of my checks weren't signed by my dad anymore. And although I thought I always felt like an owner, it changed and I changed. And so for me, it it became this awareness of I'm in a very different environment. I'm in a very public company that is much more managed by the quarter than it is by annual revenues or lifetime revenue. So um, that was a really interesting experience for me personally as well as professionally. Did slicing the pepperonis manually become like a uh, like something like a punishment growing up after <laughs> That's funny. No, it should have been though. Slicing for Man, twelve you've hours. Been, you've been Sorry. holding on to that one. I knew it was a good one. The minute, <laughs> like the minute I had it. minutes, but, but there's a lot to unpack there, and I think that it's funny. Like on the note of the pepperonis, it's funny how like something small like that, that a small business problem that you have, can lead to an idea that's going to change an entire industry, and it's often how disruptions like that happen. But I think it goes back to that growth mindset too. I mean, if you would have just sat there and, and if he would have been an individual who accepted things the way they were and didn't have that mindset of abundance, you know, to go and say, okay, this is a problem that can be solved. It's just that little slight edge that kind of separates, you know, some of the most successful and people and individuals and companies in the world from the people who aren't. Um, I'm interested here that you mentioned a little bit about your siblings in that situation and how you were passionate about the business and you wanted to continue to stay with it. Um, what does that look like for them? Like when that point happened, where did they branch off and go just to learn more about like kind of how that situation was for you? So my mom went off and opened up her own business called Gentle Wind. So it was a um, bookstore that really was um, about the uh, wholeness of an individual. So a lot of self-help books and 
lots of things in that nature. My oldest brother um, opened his own restaurant. It was called Out on Main in downtown Columbus and uh, really was an expression for himself to be able to come out. And then um, he's done many things since then. He's also, he was an investor in a biofuel company, um, started that from the ground up and then raised about $40 million um, with, with an organization out of London um, and, and really renewable fuel. Um, and now he and his husband, his husband Rick Neal, is running for Congress. So um, he also, my brother also started Equality Ohio, which is a nonprofit all about the, the equality and the rights for um, people of same sex. And then my sister is an artist and she lives in Florida. Um, and she is all doing all types of art, but she's most recently thinking about franchising with Donatos, which is super exciting. And my youngest brother, most interesting story, moved out to Colorado and ended up buying a 2,800-acre ranch where he has 423 yak, um, some greenhouses, and obviously grows other things in Colorado. So very, uh, very wide variety of interests in our family, but um, also all very entrepreneurial as well. I got to ask, how do you get to yak? Like, of all the animals, like, how does he go, okay, you know what? I'm really passionate about it. I want a growth mindset. Yak. Everybody else had cows and pigs. That's and right. I'm going for yak. Why not yak? It's the well, money the animal. Yak pizza out in Colorado is pretty popular. So, well, what it's a longer story. What ended up happening is he went out to Colorado and there was a 2,800 acre ranch up for sale, up for auction. And he had been out there, and my, my youngest brother is all about. Um, saving the land and the earth and it was the largest artesian water supply in Colorado so it's uh, Crestone Colorado and which is by the sand dunes and by spiritual mountain and so he had just been out there visiting and all this sounds like another book right so he went out there and um, met all the townspeople and they there was a gentleman coming in from another state who wanted to buy the land to sell the water to a large corporation and bottle it and all the townspeople obviously were very upset about that because it was all sacred land. And so my brother said, I'll, I'll buy a couple hundred acres. Let's do this. So they went to auction. And unfortunately, all the townspeople out of Creston backed out. So it was my brother against this uh, gentleman from out of, town, out of state. And my brother ended up with the whole ranch. So it wasn't intentional. It was much more out of a passion of how do you create and save a sacred space um, for the town and that's what he did that's funny so two weeks ago we were on the show with rick mailer talking about goats and rick said wanted us to tell you hi by the way Love him. Um, and now we're talking about yaks but i think we're kind of a little off track here so let, maybe let's get back to the, the purchasing of mcdonald's and i know um you mentioned you kind of lost yourself so when did you realize hey we've got to buy this back this isn't this isn't working this isn't sticking was it because it wasn't you know fitting with your core values as a company like what made you think okay we need we need to go back on this so um it was a lot more black and white than that i will say why i lost myself was because as a chief people officer in this organization with a new ceo and 23 new vice presidents and you know our gna went from 10 million dollars a year to 32 million dollars a year and so all of a sudden the environment changed um and i when i say i lost myself i and a couple meetings in the very beginning was still that young, I, you know, I'm going to speak my mind, I have the courage to all of a sudden being put in my place. And as my family members left, I realized this is a very different company. And why, why that was impactful for me, because 
I started, it started becoming more about me and my agenda and my resume versus what was best for the company. And that happens in corporations, right? Like if you're in a very political organization, sometimes you can work in yourself into a fear mode. And when you work, start, start working into a fear mode, you start making decisions that may be self, um, more self-reflecting than it is about why and what your passion is and what your purpose is. And so that happened to me. And that I like to talk about it, and, and it's a very obviously transparent but vulnerable state is because it happens to everybody. And I wasn't making decisions that were unethical or um, you know illegal. It was much more about values and decisions that weren't aligned with who I was. And I lost my voice. And so where I used to have the courage to go and speak to the CEO about certain things, I would pause and I would figure out the best way to position myself. And that it was about, it was, uh, we had to make a very difficult decision um, with our Atlanta market. It was three o'clock in the morning. So what happens when you work in fear? You work harder, you work longer, you become paralyzed, you become paranoid. And it was three o'clock in the morning and I'm at the office trying to figure out the best way to unfortunately close the market. And I remember it was as if it was a dark room and someone came in and turned the lights on. This aha moment of, wow, I am not being authentic to myself. And if we have to do this and it's outside of my circle of control, then we have to do it the right way. And I need to position it in a different way than the way that I was going about it. And it can't be about me. It needs to be about the people. And so that one single moment kind of changed my perspective and the way in which I worked from that point out. Shortly after that, um, McDonald's stock hit an all-time low. So they hit a historic low of $12.37. So rumor hit the street that they were going to get out of all the brands that they were in. So Fazoli's and Chipotle and Boston Market and Donato's. And literally, I heard it on NPR the rumor was they were going to close and sell all Donatos. So Donatos would be no longer in existence. And as soon as I heard that, my dad had walked into the office and sat down. And it was my immediate response of, Dad, like we got to buy this company back. We have to do whatever it takes to buy this company back. I will do whatever it takes to buy this company back. I'll sell my house. I'll take everything out of the market, whatever it takes. But we have 5,000 people that are counting on us for their jobs and their career. And we have really great destiny. So let's buy it back. And I really, I need you. So he was just, right, here's a man who built his entire company, sold it to McDonald's, ready to let it go. And I said, I need you because you're really smart and you're a visionary and you're, you know what you're doing, but I really need your money because I don't have enough money to do this. So he didn't blink. He said, absolutely, let's put a team together. Let's buy the company back. And so McDonald's is a great partner because that was February, and by October, um, we were presenting in front of their board. Uh, our CFO was presenting the plan, CFO at the time, was presenting a plan to shut it all down and close all the real estate and sell it all off. And then I presented our team's plan, which was to let us buy it back with a mezzanine loan, which was really an awesome idea, right? So we sold very profitable. In 99, we had a 13 and a half multiple of our EBITDA, and when we bought it back, it was it was losing millions of dollars. And so for us, it was all about, we knew that we could turn it around. Uh, we had a $10.5 million turnaround in that first year. and But it was those two presentations in front of the brand board. And fortunately, McDonald's was a great partner and said, absolutely, family, buy the company back for pennies on the dollar and uh, keep it in as a mezzanine loan, which was 
really beneficial for us because it allowed us to make the right decisions to turn the company around from there. And the ability to go and put it all on the line again for not only your father but your entire family, I think it speaks volumes to just the way that he kind of has an outlook on life and the way that you guys look at life. So can you speak more to that? Like, Are there any thoughts that initially come to your head when you think like you're going to your dad and you're saying, hey, let's go all back into it and let's kind of risk you know, everything that we've worked hard for again? Because um, there could be a chance that it couldn't make it, right? Or it wouldn't be as successful as before. So do you remember the kind of thoughts that went through your head or, or what the mindset was between all of you that kind of helped you make that decision? So you know when you're so passionate about something that there's obviously something much greater than you that's pulling you or, or pushing you towards something. I would say that was that. Um, the entire experience for me was all about I knew and I believe in what we do as a company. And so... We, we have an um, umbrella idea of agave capitalism, which is about doing business and doing it with love and giving back to the community. And I believe in our products, but more importantly, I believed in our people. So I did not for, I didn't even blink an eye. Like it wasn't for a second. I knew that our people could turn the company around again. It wasn't me, it wasn't my dad. It was our associates and our managers. And truly, in a year, they did, and we became profitable again. But it was because they started caring about what they did. And when people love what they do and love the people they serve, then then there's, I, I heard you say abundance earlier, then, the, then there's abundance, right? And abundance comes out of really good intentions. And we do believe that people, it's important to be a profitable company because good people who make money can do good things. And that it's all about the intention behind the capital. So capitalism isn't bad when you have good people that are in capitalism doing good things. And so all of that, it's just what I grew up with. I don't honestly know any different because that's how my dad brought us all up. So for us, it was all a, my passion was about, I know we can turn this around. And I know that our people can make a difference. And I know that the more that we make as a company, the more we can give back as a company. So what were some of those granular steps? Like, you get the company back, right? Okay, we're losing millions. What were some of those granular steps that you took to kind of help turn things around in the beginning? So, honestly, it was just being back out in the stores and the restaurants with our people and learning from our people, what were we doing wrong? What can we do again? And it's interesting, if you remember that, you guys are too young, but in the time, so 1999, when we sold, we had people boycotting our stores. Our customers were like, don't do it. Like, this is awful. The, the product's not going to be the same. To the time we bought it back, we had customers literally, this, this resurgence of love and passion for our brand again. And it wasn't again because my dad and I, it was just our customer base loved the 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 product and they loved everything that we did and what we stood for and so they would write us letters and obviously come back because sales went through the roof was all about thank goodness you got it back again the product tastes better but really great example right like if you do a case study because we didn't change anything from the time we sold our product to the time we bought it back maybe a few operational changes but it wasn't as if we made some major changes, but the taste of the product for the consumer changed because of the brand that they were buying it from. So um, the granular steps were, I went to work on operations. I spent every single week, missed a lot of my son's up, upbringing, which is unfortunate. It wasn't a good balance. Um, but every single week in a different market in our stores with our people. And it was really just about, is the pizza right? And 
more than you want to know. But we do test pies and we tear the dough apart and we look, we turn it over to make sure the bake's right and to make sure that our people understood what we were serving. So it's kind of back to the basics. Um, my dad really went to work on some lavish contracts that we had during the McDonald's days that were like for 2,000 stores with a POS company and things like that of kind of financially getting us back in that in that sense. And then who is now my husband, um, Tom Krause, went to really work on what's our next concept look like? What are we going to reinvent ourselves to look like? And so we kind of divided the company up that way. And But I would say the true turnaround was that associate at that counter, at that delivery house at that drive up window on the phone just caring about what they did of it again because they cared about the company not because they cared about me not because they cared about my dad but because they cared about what they were doing again but do you think that part of that cultural shift was because you know mcdonald's came in and bought it and didn't really continue your back so they you know kind of pushing your values onto another company that transition period um do you think that was where kind of things slipped up I don't know that it was values as much as concept. So um, while they brought on a new CEO, and rest in peace because he was a good guy, but not in the necessarily the best position, um, they brought on a lot of overhead. Um, and then we spent millions of dollars reinventing ourselves. So instead of maybe just allowing us to grow with what we've been successful for, they tried to reinvent us. Not they, we did, because I was I was at the table, right? So we all tried to reinvent ourselves and try to capture dine-in business, and if you uh, the pizza the pizza industry, right? What, whether it was Pizza Hut with red roofs, walked away from that and did the Delcos and did all the smaller units, and so we were trying to capture the dine-in business by bringing people into the restaurants, and we spent a lot of money doing that. And while when we first opened, um, you know, it was very successful, what it isn't is you it we're not we're not a dine in destination pizza category we are not and we are an off premise we love to bring it to you we love when you come in so we we do obviously have about 10% of our um, business is dine in but it's not the majority of who we are so most of it was just trying to change who we were and when you try to change a 40 year old concept now 55 year old concept um, and try to change consumers behaviors you can't, you, that's, a, that's a difficult task. Try to change in your consumers to, to come and visit you differently um, when you have the same concept and the same idea. So that was the crux of it. I would say their values are very similar. McDonald's is a great company. They, they develop their people from um, associate level up. Their values are very similar, but what happened was our values shifted because we felt like we had to become something different. And then all of a sudden we were answering to the street instead of a private equity family business. And that, that, that in itself, whether it was McDonald's, any other public company, changes really the culture and who you are. You mentioned earlier, I want to eventually get to uh, talk about a little bit of the community things you guys have going on. And I know that you and Tani Crane have um, great initiatives over at Reeve Avenue. Yeah. Um, before jumping to that, just a little bit about the new concepts that you mentioned. Like, What does the future look like for you guys? What are some of the things that you're focused on? aside from just sticking to the core values and continuing to do what you do very well? So our Short North store is probably our newest example of who we are and what we're trying to express. It has a black brick tavern associated with it. And the black brick is really important, if I could divert here a little bit. So years ago, when my dad first opened up his first restaurant, um, my grandpa 
on my mom's side was a plumber, Bauman Plumbing. And so he had a little shop in front of his plumbing business where he said, you know, Jim, you can open up your first shop here. So my dad did. It was still Thurman Avenue right across the street. But every night my dad would go outside and he would sit on the windowsill after he closed up shop. And he would visualize this building, which is where I ended up growing up behind. And he would visualize, which is really important, right? Like you have to have a dream and you have to be able to picture it and you have to be able to put the steps in and work really hard to get there. But for him, it was this black brick building, mm-hmm. and he would visualize customers standing in line waiting for the products and associates happy and this really, really um, principle-centered business. And so two years go by, and he got the opportunity to buy the property across the street, build the business. So important to him to get black brick, and I say this when I speak, like he had to have black brick because that's what he visualized. I have no idea why. And so he would always tell us as kids, he's like, I had to go all the way to London to get the black brick, but it was London, Ohio, so it really wasn't that far. But he would go and... Sometimes you just leave that part of the story. Yeah, it was rapid. all the way to London. But it was really important to him because in order to create that vision, is really about um, that picture that you had in place. So, so the black brick tavern at Short North, Ardenato's there, is really representation of being able to bring your vision to life through, and the black brick, that's where that comes from. So... That's our newer concept. We have um, healthier products on that menu. We have a skinny pizza. We have a whole grain crust, uh, seven grain crust, and we're working towards healthier options on that menu. So the stores that we're opening up now and are in additional states, we're in nine states, are under that what we're calling um, the Redwood um, concept, which is all about bringing, being able to bring people to the table with a pepperoni pizza, but also with a vegan pizza and being able to have options for everyone. Let's kind of pivot here into some of the nonprofit stuff you have going on. Reeb Avenue Center, we had Tani on as well, and she was very excited about the Reeb Avenue Center and, and both your work there. So maybe let's start there and kind of talk about your experience with the Reeb Avenue Center. Absolutely. So, um, and Tani Crane is one of my, she's my best friend, but a mentor, and she's brilliant. Um, about six years ago, Mayor Michael Coleman at the time had called my dad. And so, because we grew up on the south side of Columbus, Literally, our first store is there, still there today, by the way, on Thurman Avenue. Um, his, his call out to my dad was kind of like, hey, like you grew up on the south side, like things worked out pretty well for you, right? My dad's like, yeah, and actually, truth, that store is still our number one sales store in our system, which is amazing. It just shows a lot about the resolve of that community. Like It's a strong community. He's like, but have you driven around lately? Dad's like, well, no, honestly. So we did it. We did literally just let's drive around the neighborhood and see what's going on. And so what we found out was one in four houses are boarded up. Um, unfortunately, 68% of the um, people in that, in that community are at 200% below poverty. 70% are renters, not homeowners. 26% of the kids between the ages of um, 16 and 24 are not in school don't have their GED and they're not working, Um, highest, not only highest poverty, but um, security as far as safety and gangs and human trafficking and opiates, right? So we've got this community that is a really awesome community that unfortunately has fallen on really hard times because back in the day, Buckeye Steel was there, a lot of manufacturing companies. So it was a really industrial community. And over time, those businesses left the programming left, and so this community fell on hard times. And so really great people, no programs, no businesses, no services. 
And so my dad said, Mayor Michael Coleman said, I need you to be a champion for the South Side. And my dad's like, okay, but don't use my name. Like, I will do whatever you need. Financially, I'm all in. And Mayor Michael Coleman said, no, I understand. Like, I need you to be a champion. I need you to stand up for the South Side. So my dad called me, and one of the things I learned, which really important in business, is surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. And, like, the buyback of the company is all about bringing in the people that are smarter than you and don't be the smartest people person at the table ever. And so I called Tanny Crane, and by the end of dinner um, that evening, she had matched financially and said, I'm all in. What do we need to do? And so interesting about what we did was we didn't necessarily have a strategy, but we approached it like any business, which is ask your customers what they need. And so we did a survey in the neighborhood, 2,700 people, households, literally, what do you need to get out of poverty? And really what they came back with, I'm sure she told you that, was five different things. And one was affordable housing, health, safety, education, and jobs. So the elementary school building on Reeb Avenue Center sat there empty for five years, um, which is amazing. You think about all the demographics and the statistics that I talked about. Not one broken window, no copper taken off the roof, no TV stolen out of the building. So there really was this hub of hope in this building, I believe, we believe, in this community saying something's got to happen. And so um, the city went to work on safety. They went to work on the health center. And then my dad, along with Bob Weiler and um, 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 Don, Kent, Don Kelly, went to work on housing. So they have six different partners working on housing for the affordable housing. And then we took over the building, raised $12.5 million, and decided to stay solely focused on workforce development and helping with education. So now we have 14 different nonprofits inside of the elementary building. We raised $12.5 million to renovate it. And we have a pay it forward cafe where if you can pay, you can come in and pay. We hope that you pay it forward. It's awesome food. It's run by Mid Ohio Food Bank, but we have an executive chef. We serve salmon and shrimp and all kinds of awesome food. But if you can't afford to pay and you're food insecure, you can come in and volunteer for one hour and then you can earn your meal. So that's an important part for us in the community. Um, I want to talk a little bit about love kindness. Like there's an extension of that now. So we've been open for three years this month, actually. Um, and we've served the community in multiple different ways. But two things that we're doing right now that are really important. One is Reeb 2.0. So we're working with Ohio Health. So we're going to work in the healthcare industry, the call center industry, and the construction industry to bring people in and help train them for higher level jobs. So not just entry-level jobs, but life-changing jobs. And so we have a pilot with Ohio Health right now. They identified three jobs that are career-paying jobs, and we have um, eight different pilots with 22 different people now that have gone through the program at Reeb Avenue, and they're working at Riverside and Grant, and they've been there for over a year now, 100% employed, and have been able to get into career life. So that's Reeb 2.0 and working with workforce development. The other thing we're working on is called Love Kindness. And Love Kindness is, and you guys all know, when you, whether we leave here tonight or whether we're in Short North, you see people, unfortunately, holding signs asking for money. So what people would call panhandling, which I hate that term. Um, but we have people, they're vulnerable citizens in our community that can't make ends meet. So they have to ask for money. And in a survey that we did um, of people that are panhandling, 58% of them do not want to be panhandling. They want a job. Unfortunately, they have barriers, whether it be addiction, whether it be a physical barrier, or whether it be 
the fact that they just can't get to work. They want to be able to work. And over 60% of them also don't want money because money only feeds addiction. So we came up with the idea to do a love kindness card. And the love kindness card is a meal voucher for $10 to come to Roots Cafe and an all day long bus pass. So they, in an envelope, um, we've handed out over a thousand vouchers in the neighborhood to people that are panhandling, whether it's on the intersection that I get off on every single night um, on 70, or whether it's in the short north um, when I leave on Sunday mornings after I leave church, or all the volunteers that hand them out. And we've had 310 people come into the center. And the idea isn't just a meal. So it's a voucher for a meal. But the idea is we have a navigator then that wraps their arms around that person, takes them throughout the building, and helps them find the services they need, whether it's housing or shelter, just shelter for the evening, or a job or education, so that we're able to help the people get from where they are today to their next journey. It's amazing. It's awesome to see the different initiatives that you guys have come up with and really identified where the real pain points are within the community and then reverse engineered those into concepts that sound like they can sustain themselves for a long time. So I hope they continue to do so. I think we've got a really good insight into the business and um, your path to where you are today. I'm kind of curious though, just Jane as a person, like when you sit back on a Friday night and you're with your family and you're kind of just reflecting on the week and you're looking ahead. Are there any particular thoughts that kind of pass through your mind in terms of things that you're really and particularly proud of or that you're looking forward to in the future? Oh, so I'm super proud of my family. So we're a blended family. We have six kids. Um, my son and his wife have uh, my first grandchild, and we have one on the way, which all of that brings joy, right? And when you can um, stick, step back a little bit and see your children as adults making good decisions, um, I wouldn't take credit for that. There's something much greater than me, but that gives me joy. And um, I'm, if you guys ever did love languages, I'm a quality time person, so those moments are important to me, but I'm also an empty nester now. So all our, we have five kids in college right now, which is one, expensive, and two, a new chapter, right? So um, I'd say for me, this is a new chapter of trying to identify um, really keeping those family connections and allowing your children to become adults and grow and learn and become and learn their own lessons um, based on what the things that they have learned. But for me, I think what my vision is, what I would love to see is Reeb Avenue centers across the nation um, and being able to expand Donato so that we're able to help the communities come together in order to do that. So that's my great vision and not mine, but it's a vision that I think obviously would take a lot of people to make happen. Um, but I think a center like Reeve Avenue meets the needs beyond just one silo um, component of their life, but it's a holistic view. And then really, as Donatos grows, being able to give back in a greater way. So if our, our mission statement is to promote goodwill through our product, principles, service, and people, but if our vision statement is to give more than we receive, um, which it is, then that's where we can make an impact. So. For me, that's what I take great joy in is being able to move the needle in a community and lift them up out of poverty and being just a small piece of that because it is just a small piece of that. It takes many, many people to make that happen. But really, and I dream, that would be the dream. And before we get to our last question of the show, I do want to talk about your experience. We talked about it earlier, Undercover Boss. Yes. So... It, you know, for our listeners out there who haven't seen the TV show Undercover Boss, they take a boss and put them into a role inside their own business. 
kind of experience it and, and talk with the employees and see what's going on. So can you talk to us a little bit about what happened with your experience there on Undercover Boss? I, I'm surprised, honestly, after talking with you because you go all to all your stores all the time. I'm surprised your employees didn't recognize you. Right? I know. I, I am too. We did, if you um, and seen the show, we did have one manager recognize me. Huh. And she called me out, and it happened to be at our campus location. <laughs> and so uh, they, so yeah, they dressed. Uh, first of all, they called us because White Castle, which is another family business here in Columbus, which I love, the Ingram family had done Undercover Boss their very first season. And so they had called um, my friend Jamie at White Castle and said, "Hey, do you know any women in the pizza business?" He said, "Oh, I happen to, because women in the pizza business is not—it's very uncommon." So um, they called us and. At first, we're kind of, we, we are always say yes till there's a reason to say no. And so I'm like, that'd be weird. And of course, people would recognize me. And do we really want to do this? But if you watch the show, it is all about all we are, right? Like it's giving back to your people in a way that you wouldn't typically be able to give back, whether that's buying a house or a college education. And you get to do that. So we knew that'd be really a, a great opportunity. So I was dressed up as a rockabilly, which I'm old enough to have no idea what that is which you guys probably do, but it was about four years ago. So for me, I was like, I don't, I really don't know what, but basically I had tattoos. I had nose ring. I had, I had brown contacts and black hair, big glasses. Um, and so I would go into the store. And so the one in particular where they recognized me, which you have to watch the show, but I had a delivery driver who decided to tell me on national TV that, um, between or actually honest deliveries when people would ask him to come in, uh, they would also ask him if they, he wanted to smoke pot and he would partake in it and then he would get back in his car and deliver another pizza. So this is four years ago, right? Even before medical marijuana was even a topic, right? Whoops. Right. And so we're <laughs> on national TV and I'm in then mom mode. Like, are you high right now? Like all the reasons, like, I can't even believe this guy just told me that on national TV and here we are, this family business in Ohio way before people were even talking about medical marijuana. And so it wasn't quite as popular as it is today. So I was like freaking out. And and so he went on to tell me about all of his experiences and what he does and why he does it, et cetera. You have to watch the show to find out what ends up happening. Um, but it was one of those moments that for us, and I will tell you, inside scoop, the producer kept trying to get me to take my wig off and go in and fire him. And she asked me six times. So it's 1.30 in the morning. It's on High Street. It's at campus at Ohio State University. And she's like, don't you, you know, aren't you angry? He put your whole business in jeopardy. You guys could go out of business because of this. And don't you just want to go in and fire him? I'm allowed to say this. And I was like, we wouldn't, we, that's just not who we are. Like, I would never do that. My, my mom would never do that. My dad would never do that. It's not who we are. And so... Um, I don't want him on the road right now if he's high because it's still illegal here in Ohio and that's not safe. But um, I'm not going to go in and fire the guy. That's not what we would do. So you have to watch the show to find out what we ended up doing. But he stayed with us for four years after that um, and really great guy. So it was it was a really interesting experience. I believe more in the show today than I did before when I used to watch it. And I'd be like, oh, my gosh, these people are on. They know they're on film, right? Like they know the camera's there. Um, but the way they do it is in such a way that while our stores knew they were on a reality show, they didn't know it was Undercover Boss. So the, the ruse is it's a very different show than it is Undercover Boss. So it was a great experience. I wouldn't change it. Um, Kanisha is probably one of my favorite stories who 
ended up just recently, this last spring, graduated from University of Cincinnati. Um, she had lost her brother, and we did the Donate Life with her. Um, and she's she's actually now working with Big Brothers, Big Sisters. She's awesome. So That's a great story. And I think from there, probably a good place to go towards our last question of the show, which is centered around the theme here on Conquering Columbus. Um, it's live uncomfortably. And without telling you why we chose that, what do you think of when you hear the phrase, and, and how does it apply to your life? Living uncomfortably, I love it. So one of the um, character traits that I talk about in the book is courage. Um, and my lessons during that four years with McDonald's was about making sure not only you have character, but you surround yourself with people of character, uh, making sure you have the courage, and making sure you have uh, compassion and conviction. And I talk a lot about courage because a lot of times courage isn't just about taking risks but it's about having the courage to have a voice, but it's also about having courage to live outside of your comfort zone and do things, for example, if you asked me when I was 9, 10, 11, 12, growing up, if I ever thought I would be that person at that table saying, let's buy this company back and putting people around the table to make it happen, um, I, I honestly, that, that wasn't something that was probably in my repertoire of growing up saying, that's what I'm gonna do someday, but allowing yourself to live in an environment where you can take risks, but you can live your voice out loud and you can live your values out loud and not being afraid to do that. And so I think I love, I love live, living uncomfortably um, because I think it makes you look at yourself and make sure you're being authentic and grounded and also look at opportunities in a whole different way that you might not have been able to do that. Well, Jane, thanks a lot. I, I can tell, Josh, I think you'll be the same way that feels really authentic the way you're talking and your story. So we really appreciate you joining us and taking the time to tell it. Well, thank you. I appreciate being invited. Very much so. Yeah, and Conquerors, thanks a lot for listening. That was Jane Abel. She's the chairwoman and one of the founding family members over Donato's telling their story and all the experiences she's had along the way. If you guys enjoyed that episode, please give it a like, share it on Facebook. We'll talk to you guys next week. Hey, Conquerors, that's it for the episode today. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode and learned a lot. If you did, make sure to leave a like. Share us on Facebook with your friends. We really appreciate all your support. And every time you share our podcast or leave a review on iTunes, it really does help us out. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here. And that's going to start with FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent, through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state. And you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And our next sponsor is Share. For the rides that you take the most, ride with Share. Share is a new transportation company now driving Columbus. Schedule your ride, and Share picks you up at your door with professional drivers and a growing fleet of connected vehicles. Share is now hiring with entry-level management positions available. You can learn more about careers with Share at drivewithshare.com. I'd also like to give a shout out to Molly Ross. 
Molly Ross is an independent designer who focuses on branding and web design. She wants to connect with you, hear your story, and partner to create something beautiful that will help your business be more successful. If you'd like to check out some of Molly's work or connect with her, you can go to mollyross.com. Finally, if you've ever wondered what it takes to start your own podcast, we're here to help. We're putting together a podcast startup package with our recommendations and some of the key lessons we learned over the past two years of podcasting. You can sign up by heading over to our website, conqueringcolumbus.com. And while you're there, don't forget to give us a like on Facebook and be sure to subscribe and share Conquering Columbus wherever you get your podcasts. You can drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.